Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and t shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hello. And welcome to My Time Capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens. My guest this week is the presenter, actress and author, Janet Ellis. And in this podcast, I ask her to reveal the five things from her life that she would like to preserve in a time capsule. She can pick four things that she treasures and one that she would rather banish from her life by burying it in the ground. Janet first appeared on our TV screens in 1978 in the BBC children's programme Jack and Ori Playhouse. But she's probably best known as a presenter of Blue Peter, a job she only did for four years. Since then, she has presented many other shows, acted in things such as Doctor Who and Waking the Dead, worked in the theatre and on radio, been the voice of a large number of adverts, written two best-selling novels, The Butcher's Hook in 2016 and How It Was in 2019, written numerous articles for various newspapers and magazines, and brought up three children, one of whom is the wonderful singer Sophie Ellis Baxter. She was awarded an MBE in 2016 for her services to charity and theatre. So, if you ever meet Janet, please don't ask, what have you been up to since Blue Peter? Unless you've got a spare hour or two for the answer. And talking of answers, let's find out what Janet Ellis's is to the question, what would you put in a time capsule? And other questions. Hope you enjoy it. Janet, it's lovely to be here. It's sitting at the end of your garden. Well, here we are with a time capsule, and we're going to put some things from your life into it. Five things that you're going to choose, one of which you're glad to get rid of. Looking so, forward to that bit. Oh, good, because people tend to struggle a little bit with that one. Sometimes people can't think of anything bad in their life, which is unusual, isn't it? How old are they, 12? <laughs> well, <laughs> Actually, that's not true at 12. You've usually got a lot of bad things, but no, I'm impressed by that. So let's launch in. What's your first item? OK, the first item is page 136 of the hymnal, uh, as you find in church or assembly. And the hymn is My Song is Love Unknown. And the reason for choosing that is not because I'm religious. In fact, I'm a humanist. It's because there's always been music in my life. 
And there still is, of course, because I noticed some of my family make their living from it. Yes. And I was addicted to musicals. I think I still am. So initially I thought, do I want one of those big old 50s musicals? Do I want West Side Story or Oklahoma? I know all the words, it's easy. And I thought, no, I think the thing that made me feel most connected to music initially was singing hymns because they are big songs. (laughs) They are really big songs. And I was always in the choir at whatever school I happened to fetch up in. So I annoyingly know all the descants and (laughs) even more annoyingly perform them. But there's something about those hymns that is just an instant connection to something quite specific, probably Victorian, to do with an uncomfortable start to the day, school assembly. It's a bit itchy, isn't it? You're Mm. not quite sure, you know, you haven't done the work or you're waiting for the result of that thing or is your favourite girl in three years ahead of you in school today, which used to make a big difference to me. But (laughs) I went to lots of schools as well. But I just... Even now, when the chords strike on the organ or whatever it is, I just think, start of something. And it's music, and it's that music that just immediately connects. Does it take you back to school, then? Yeah, not in a particular school. I went to seven schools, so Mm. my dad was in the army. We moved around a lot. Um, It takes me back, I suppose, to some sort of potential for the day over which you have fairly limited control. Right. Because as a child, you really can't decide much about your life at all, can you? No. And I I like the fact that music has an effect. I mean, it still does massively. And it's the thing I reach for shortly after a book to get me through things. I find it very therapeutic and I love singing along. But there's something about those hymns, which is some, I don't know, it connects to an ancient line of singing, you know, which isn't... It wouldn't be folk music for me. For some people, it probably would be folk music. The idea of music that has been inherited and that you have a very tenuous connection with, but that you're not necessarily even going to pass on. You know, I can't imagine. Luckily for them, getting my kids around and saying, today, we're going to listen to some hymns. But it's the weight (laughs) of the hymn book in your hand and the number on the board and knowing that that's what you're going to be singing, Mm. which I rather enjoy. It's a lovely hymn as well, isn't it? It is, yeah. 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 One of my favourite music teachers at school... Mrs. Williamson, told us that she'd chosen it for her wedding. And we all thought, oh, and it's only later I thought, no, 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 your song is love known when you get married. (laughs) (laughs) That's not the right choice. (laughs) (laughs) You could be rather off-putting. You could choose all sorts of terrible things. Well, the words of most hymns, let's face it, are not great. No. They don't stand alone, do they, as poetry? No, not really, no. In fact, they're clunky. (laughs) And the trouble is that there's usually one verse that you sort of know you can almost take yourself off book and sing along and then there are approximately 243 verses that you don't know and that you think probably the Victorian writer ran out of some sort of inspiration along the way. And you always have that embarrassing moment if you decide you're going to sing out. (laughs) So if you're at a funeral or a wedding, you think, come on, it's my duty now to really give it as much as I can. Exactly. Let's make a sound. Yeah. And then you start doing it and then the scansion of the words is impossible. Also, nobody else is. Nobody else. That's the thing. That's the number of times that I thought, oh, I think this is still in my register in the morning. Oh, no, nobody else is. Something is broken. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Lord. 
<laughs> but that sense of the start of a hymn, though, so for you there's a sort of a, almost a trepidation, though, as well. There is, there? there is, there is. There's also a reassurance because there's those plunky old chords. And, and I think probably if you're very familiar with them, which is doubtless now a generational thing, you are familiar with the way they work. Mm. So you can more or less tell where the middle eight's going to be. You can more or less tell when you're coming back to the chorus. They very seldom shock you. You know, they're not going to suddenly go a bit bit vibey in the middle. No, no. <laughs> they are guessable, aren't they, a lot they of are. They are, they are. Particularly, I think, actually, framework. strangely, more modern hymns, which are written yeah. in a, almost in a nursery rhyme Which style. I don't like. I don't, I'm quite, weirdly, it's nothing to do with me now, because as I no. say, I'm humanist, so I really don't have any, nevertheless, that's never stopped me giving an opinion. I don't like that approach to it. I no. don't think it needs to be said differently, and I'm not great about guitars and stuff and, you know, all that in church, which is fine for me to say is I'm not there either. But certainly when I hear it now, it doesn't have the same effect on me. It doesn't no. connect to some... In fact, it's almost slightly insulting to the congregation because the the assumption seems to be with the writing of those hymns that if we wrote anything more complicated, you wouldn't be able to do it. Yes, diluted. Whereas those hymns, particularly the ones I'm thinking of, which tend to be Victorian in the main, I mean, if not, they're probably earlier, they are, they're punishing. You know, they're Mm. not, they're not about the good times. (laughs) They're really not. Get it right if you don't. Things aren't waiting for you in a good way. They're they're not the sunny uplands. And I think they're also written with the idea that actually they would be sung by a choir Mm. and that the rest of the congregation would join in as best they could. The choir would give the great exultation. Yeah, in my case, probably quite a long way down the church, not in a a named pew. You weren't in the church choir then? I wasn't in the church choir, no, just at school. My family weren't church attenders and apart from the big things. Mm. But as I got older, in fact, it was at someone's funeral that I realised that my commitment to not being at all spiritual had to extend beyond just thinking it. And that's when I decided to join the humanists because I wanted right. everyone to know. Yes. I've never gone that far, but I, I certainly am tempted. In fact, I've performed as the vicar at a number of friends' funerals Have you? over the years. Um simply because they asked me to. Mm. I was asked to do it because they didn't want God to come into the thing. Yes, exactly. Well, that's what that was my thinking when I listened to the words of the funeral and I thought, I'm not going to meet up with anybody again. Mm. I'm, not, I'm not in the least uncomforted by that. I'm not, I'm not bothered. Because this is it. This is it. And it's pretty bloody impressive, isn't yes, it? Yes, really. Yeah. And make the most of this and do the things you mean to do. And don't... And the, also, it, it, I can't bear the idea of trudging through this for some other reward. You know, you have to try and find the good stuff here. This is this is the chance you get. But also, I, I'm not in the least, as I say, uncomforted by the idea that people I've loved and lost are gone. gone. You know, that they're not waiting around on those clouds, mm. <laughs> looking at their watches. <laughs> <laughs> waiting for you to die. Yeah. How lovely. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, I respect people's wishes if that's what they want to believe. But I f- personally find just as much comfort in the fact that we are it to each other. Mm-hmm. People matter more to me than anything else, and the kindness that you show should be immediate and proper, and in that moment rather than deferred or even punished if it doesn't happen. You know, it's it seems an odd way to live. Yes. 
If you put up Absolutely. with this, you'll get a reward and at the, the end And of if it. you walk around any graveyard, and they are a particular... Do you like graveyards? I do I like graveyards, absolutely yeah. love graveyards. Wherever I go, I want to go to the church first to look around and kind of see who those people were, how long they lived, what sort of names crop up. Mm. But if you walk around any churchyard, particularly when you can still read the inscriptions and there are great lists of lost children or whole families yeah. taken... There is always some text that underlines an acceptance of this. You know, that God has spoken, that's how it is, and, you know, you've got to put up with it. And as, as I say, if people are comforted by that, good on them. But frankly, I'm going to fight that kicking and screaming. Yeah. And let's, let's find a way for it to not happen. Yeah. It's also, it, it's incredibly reductive, isn't it? Because I know that when I was little, um, I used to imagine that people who'd lived in those times had a kind of extra way of coping with hardship, you know, particularly if, if they were, obviously it's close to your heart if you, if you were a child or if you have some, you know, the idea of losing children in infancy, um, that they would somehow have grown a kind of emotional carapace to mm. cope because that was the way of things. And then I read Mary Shelley's diary account of the death of her little girl and it wasn't that at all. It was what I would have written, what mm. you would have written. Mm-hmm. It was just a parent losing a child. There was no extra. There was nothing. I mean, she would She would have, I, I would imagine, have uh, consigned the child to the arms of God, but certainly in her writing in the immediate aftermath, it was just, I don't want to lose this child. No. And that was no compensation? No. 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 The pain is as, the pain as, is the as same. easily as acute. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. I'd like to be a stoic, but I don't want to be that. I don't want to be someone who just goes, wow, that's how it was meant to be. Mm. Yes. Nah. Very mysterious ways, mm. I think. Uh, well, we should take that hymn <laughs> that uh, religiously means nothing to you at all, yeah. but um, but as yeah. a as a song, yes, as it's, a, a, song. it's a good song. Yeah. yeah, not don't tell me not to live. I simply <laughs> gotta. <laughs> We're not going to put that in musicals. Do it for me every time. <laughs> I absolutely love them. And it's funny, I, I live with a, a, a musical nihilist, which doesn't mean he doesn't come to see them all because he's good like that. But he said he dreads <laughs> the opening of a musical because it usually consists of people running across the stage with rails of clothes <laughs> or at a station waving at each other. And actually... He's right. He's, he's absolutely right. right. He Even Jesus right. Christ superstar. Yes, yes. <laughs> Yeah. You know, oh. I can see that. People suddenly start singing. <laughs> What's Life should about? be like that. <laughs> Life should be like that. You just wander along the street and just pick up something and start singing about it and somebody joins in and then swings off the bus. So you can't do that anymore. Anyway, they swing off the bus in my story. Mm. I know, I love musicals so much, so much. They'll get a tingle, whatever it is. Although I've never seen Phantom of the Opera. <laughs> can I make a suggestion? Don't. Thank you. I'm, I was quite confident in that one. Yeah. 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 Good. That's my opinion out there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. We're going to take that lovely. My song is mm. Love Unknown. Yeah. Okay. We'll take and that. Saviour's and... Love to Me. I, I might find a, try and find a copy of it and, and slip nice. it in here now under our conversation. That'd be nice. And there it's it is. Well out of copyright. If it's, right. it's out of copyright, it'd be well out okay. of copyright. <laughs> <laughs> oh, listen, isn't yeah. it lovely? Mm. Oh, no, we couldn't find one. <laughs> <laughs> we just couldn't find one. <laughs> right, that's your first item. So what's the second item you want to put into the time capsule? The second item is a very spattered copy of um, a Christmas pudding recipe 
but it's stuck into one of my favourite cookery books. The cookery book is Nigel Slater, but I've got loads of cookery books. And this particular recipe is one that I've made every year. And it's there for a number of reasons. First of all, I, I love cooking. I love cooking. So I was thinking, I would, you know, I would like in my time capsule, I would like something to do with cooking. What is it? What is it? Well, I'm really greedy. So is it food? And I thought, actually, no, I think it's the anticipation of food because I enjoy the alchemy of it. I enjoy something about the ritual of those raw ingredients that even if they're simple and quick, you put together and you make into something that feeds people. I mm. find that extraordinary and joyful. And you know, even when you're doing the routine, you know, I have three kids, and even when you're doing the sort of routine cooking, which obviously involved fish fingers from time to time, there was still something about the fact that when it wasn't fish fingers, there was a possibility of it being properly cooked food. Quick, easy, simple, but but done because it mattered that I'd made it. And I always mm. rather like that. And I love reading cookery books anyway. So what's the recipe for on the Christmas? Christmas pudding. pudding? Just Christmas pudding? Yes. That's it, not an easy yeah. thing to make, though, is it? Well, you say that. It's 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 time-consuming, Michael. It's, it's one of those things where you, first of all, you have to soak everything the night before, you know, in brandy and then a bit more brandy. Um, <laughs> and then the next day, you need to make sure that you've got a clear day because it's got to steam for four hours yeah so you've got to be around to top up you know your saucepan and i make two at once so we have one halfway through the year as well and in the olden days we used to have christmas here I mean, lots and lots of people now thoughtfully my elder daughter lives just over there and she now hosts christmas because she's got a lot of children and they're a less movable thing than a lot of uh, yeah. old people um but i still make the christmas wedding and the stuffings and all that kind of thing so it's very it's collaborative mm. although they are really good cooks but it's a nice recipe, and it's it's quite, it's got some of the nice things in it, like little bits of ginger, and I like that, and and not not many nuts actually, no, not, not no. big on the nuts. I mean, I love them, but Christmas pudding I think ought to be sort of cakey, really, sort of cakey. So fruits, and um, yeah, lots of fruit, lots of fruit, and things like um, cherries, and yeah. I don't put coins in anymore because well, people just left them. That's what money's worth to the young now. They would find twenty pence. And then forget about it. So what's the point of me contributing? <laughs> Pretty much a lot of money to me. So I don't bother with that. But I, I love Christmas pudding. And I think probably one of the reasons I like cooking so much is because I am a very greedy person and I've never understood those people who go, you know, I made whatever it was, but I couldn't really taste it because I cooked. I thought, I cook for me. <laughs> <laughs> I don't care about so the rest else. of them. Yeah. <laughs> I love trying recipes. I'm very experimental when friends come round. But this recipe is a really good one. And it's... And I like that whole process. I like it's very old-fashioned and sweet and nice, and I'm sure you can make them in the microwave. Oh, no. Mm. But I like the fact it's got to bubble away once, and then you put it away, and then on Christmas Day it's got to bubble away again. That's Where did you it. find it? I found it online, modernly enough, although I've got wow. loads of Nigel Slater's books. I haven't seen his Christmas pudding recipe in any of them. And initially it was in the newspaper, and that faded and fell apart because like I say it gets covered in stuff mm -hmm. and then I found it and printed it off so the copy I've actually got which is put into my Nigel Slater kitchen diaries is so even the tape is yellowing but it's um I actually printed it off but it's just to make sure it keeps going and also I love brandy butter and mm. I like lots of cream and all that the Water. nation is divided, though, between people who like those things and people who don't. Yes, it is. Yes. And bye-bye, everybody who doesn't. Yeah. I would <laughs> sit there and eat a whole pudding. Yeah. I love it. It's like people who don't like butter. <laughs>
I think I spend most of my life looking for things. <laughs> look of disgust as an on your face. To eat butter, don't you? And <laughs> yeah. said, I love butter. And he was saying, oh, Have you got any low fat spread? Mm. No. It doesn't taste of anything. No, no, I'd eat butter meat if I could. If My I wife eats have. goat's butter. Oh, I, does she? I really like it, but I think she regards it as being hers. Oh, does she? So I have to sneak a bit when she, you know, and hope she won't notice. I do like goat's milk yogurt. Mm. I have that on a daily basis. There we are, you see. There we are. So try goat's butter. We're twins. Although um, the comedian and impressionist Kate Robbins, it's my favourite tweet of all time. Uh, she, she's... She put up a picture of a, a block of goat's butter and underneath it she wrote, who are you going to call? <laughs> that is a good... It's brilliant, isn't it? That is, yeah. Speaking of tweets, um, my, in fact, my Nigel Slater Christmas pudding recipe has a bit of a sad association for me too because um, not long after I'd made it for the nth time, I joined Twitter. And, of course, I was delighted to find that people I really liked who I've never met in real life are on Twitter and that you can kind of write to them, then there's a chance they might see it. Yeah. And so I wrote something like, you know, have made Nigel's name for Christmas pudding for the whatever it was, 15th time, and I love this recipe and so does my family. And I got a reply from Nigel Slater. Oh. Imagine my thrill, except that it said, glad you enjoy it, Jane. Because <laughs> he obviously thinks that Jane Tellis wrote to him. Oh, no. Yes, I've never met him when I was there, I won't bring that up. But um, you've, you've not torn up the recipe and thrown it I away. I have then. not, luckily for him. But that's, that's it. It's, it's, it's more on me, isn't it? You've only witnessed all for me. It's anyway. really more on me, isn't it, that, that I was going, oh, my God, Nigel Slater has oh. replied. He thinks I'm called Jane. It actually, it was lovely when, when the first book came out that people would then, you know, total strangers read and responded, which was extraordinary. Brilliant. Joyful. Really amazing. Yeah. Even if they don't particularly like it. Sort of doesn't matter. No. Genuinely, you know, it sounds disingenuous, but I genuinely found somebody just engaging with something that starts with this fairly audacious creative process where you have some thoughts and you write them down instead of just consigning them to a drawer. You go, hey, everybody, read. I'm going to write a whole <laughs> yes, book. Yeah, yeah. And then they do connect with it in some way. It's an amazing decision to make that, to suddenly think, OK, I'm going to write a book. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was a decision I probably made about uh, 140 years ago as well, and it took me quite a long time to actually get around to doing it mm. for all sorts of reasons. Actually, yeah. That's not true for lots of, for only one reason, which was I was very afraid, very afraid of the reaction, very afraid. Really? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's funny, I don't know if you'll agree with this, but I, you know, as... Um, you know, I started as an actress and mm. then became a presenter and, you know, obviously I'm still an actress. But <laughs> when when you're working as an actress or presenter, you are generally part of a team. You know, mm. even if it's only you standing in front of the camera or on stage, you know, there's a whole backup of people. And, that, and particularly doing something like Peter, which was live, you know, I used to think this is such a collaborative process. Every, yeah. Everybody matters. You know, I love being part of a team. And then I realised that actually what I mean is... It's just not not my fault. <laughs> no, it's other it's people's shared, responsibility. Shared responsibility. And uh, writing is just my fault. You know, it's... Yeah, I can see there's that. There's no, genuinely no need for another book, probably, because if you go into a bookshop or a library, there are some. And <laughs> there are very few things left unsaid. But 
the joyful thing about writing is that you can find things that have been said and say them your way. Mm -hmm. And somebody might go, oh, yeah. And that's amazing. And even if they don't, just in the moment of isolating what it is you feel about that thing or you want to say or that makes you laugh and being able to just for a moment make sense of it on the page. Mm. It's exhilarating, exhilarating. And I do feel, I do feel so lucky. Well, I would think if you were that concerned about it, you would make automatically a very good self-editor. I think you're right. And that's one of the other reasons that it took me a long time to get going, because what's happened before is that, you know, this this ambition had been burning away and I had bored people with with it and shown them things, embryonic things that I'd written. And they would go, yeah, you know, there's something here. But and when they got to but... Everything else became white noise because I thought there's two choices here. Mm. They're the idiot or I am. Yeah. <laughs> and I yeah. didn't like either of those possibilities. And of course, I realise now it's not quite as divided as that. No. Actually. And then actually they were trying to help. They were trying to help. Yes. And also the idea, you know, I think even until quite recently, you know, you kind of think, well, I'll, what I'll do is I'll write a book. I'll write a book and I'll put the end. Then I'll take it along to a publisher and they'll go, thank you for your book. Um, let's have a look at some covers, shall we? And of course, actually, it goes through so many processes. I mean, everybody else seems to know that, but I, I wasn't quite sure about that. So the first time somebody said, okay, let's just revise this. What do you mean revise? I've written it. <laughs> so it has been a slow thing. But I have had fantastic help and support along the way. Self-criticism is difficult. Though. Other people I can criticise really easily. But that's, well, that's useful, <laughs> isn't real, it? Real, real talent. If only they realise how useful it oh, was. Oh, then you are lucky. They listened. If only they listened. And having done that, though, having gone through that process and tried to learn the fact of looking at something you've done and thinking, actually, could, I, could this be better? Mm then you finally get to a point where you think you've got it and then you hand it to someone else and they say, well, what you can do to make this better? (laughs) And you go, oh, no. That pretty much Um, sums it up, But has that helped in the writing of the second book? Yes and no. I think it helps in that I know that I can do that process. I know that I can without losing it. I think, one again, one of the many, many reasons why I didn't get on with it years ago is that if I ever did think, oh, maybe I should just change that, and then I'd... I'd be afraid I'd lose it like water through a sieve, you know, that I just wouldn't get back whatever that momentum is. But it's actually, it has to be really solid. And the only way I can see that it becomes solid is that I'm rigorous about, does that word work? Is that the exact phrase I need? Is that where it should be? Do those people need to say that to each other? And I read everything aloud as well. Mm. But that probably helps from having an acting background. Yeah, definitely, I think. Yeah. If you hear it, you're hearing the reader's voice in their head. Yes. You? So if you hear an album. Well, you're also hearing repetition and things. I'm yeah. a bit allergic to having the same word featuring, you know, twice, at least certainly not twice on the same page, but even, even within the same context. I'd like to find, you know, we've got a lot of words. I've seen the dictionary. There will be one that works. You can often tell a writer who reads their stuff out loud and a writer who doesn't. Do you think? But particularly as a performer, if you're reading scripts. So if I read a script and I have that thing of a repetition of a word in one sentence followed mm. by another, I say, should we say the same uh, word? And yes. writers will often go, oh, God, yeah, no, I haven't <laughs> noticed that. 
Yeah. And the reason they haven't noticed it is because they didn't say it out yes. loud. Saying it out loud helps. But I think it's lucky if you don't mind doing that, because after all, I am, as you can tell, used to the sound of my own voice. And I and I <laughs> also, you know, I don't mind doing bits of dialogue with myself, no. which makes my dog walks interesting. And very useful for the audio book. Very useful for that, yes. <laughs> yeah. Which we'll all go out and buy now. <laughs> Would you? Thanks. Yeah, okay. That's it. I want 10%. <laughs> Okay, well, at that point, it's strange to say that we're going to put Nigel Slater's Christmas pudding yes. recipe yes. into the time Good. capsule. Yeah, just mind but, a bit of raisin. But I can see how, wrong. you know, one thing's led to another. <laughs> there we are. Yeah, that's lovely, though. What a lovely thing. Oh, I'm going to come for Christmas. I don't care. <laughs> You're uh, welcome. Yeah. The most we've had here is 28. Oh, my word. Yeah. <laughs> well, I did, we did 16 this Christmas, and yeah. I thought that was a lot. It, yeah, but, you know, it's just it's just a roast dinner, isn't it, really? At the end of the day, just a roast dinner that you have That's to what I'll say to my wife for. at Christmas. Yes. That's what I'll say. I'll say it's just a roast dinner. That you have to get up and, at 5 o'clock in the morning to put on. Yes. Yeah, and, and that will be, that'd be my divorce sorted. Yeah. Mm, mm. Interesting grounds. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely. Well, we've only put two things in the in the time capsule so far. Yeah. So what's number three? We're going to take a short break here for some adverts. We'll be back with more from Janet Ellis very shortly. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Here's a cool fact: a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact: you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome back. Let's rejoin Janet to find out what else she would put in her time capsule. It's so hard to choose. But actually, what I've got here, and it's slightly... Um, I hope you don't think it's cheating. Um, but there's two pencils. Can they get both going? Yeah, yeah. If they okay. act as one thing. They do, kind of. Um, one of them was given to me by a teacher called Mr. Barrington Wayne. Um, Mr. Barrington Wayne was my all-everything teacher when I was at one of my primary schools in Germany, actually, because I was an army child. And he was the person who encouraged me to write. He encouraged me to write because as a child, uh, I wrote all the time and I wrote amazing poems <laughs> <laughs> and they had to rhyme, you know, so that's important. Yeah, and, yeah. And I also, Otherwise actually, it's not poetry. I, I, <laughs> Come on, it's obvious. It's so obvious. <laughs> um, so I wrote a lot of that and I also actually, I wrote my first novel at 10, The Music Box, which I, I think now I rushed the ending. <laughs> 
But I also <laughs> illustrated it, which is something I wouldn't return to. But he spotted the fact that, you know, in those days, I think, it was a slightly freer education system. Mm. If you wanted to spend time on an essay or a story, as it was called then, um, that might possibly go into the timetable for the next... Mr Barrington Wayne did not mind. He Mm. let me write. And he said to me, I'm going to give you a load of blank exercise books and some pencils, and you can just... I'll just keep them coming. And it was... I think I, I was only 10 when all that was happening, and I probably didn't know how lucky I was but what I did feel was seen you know seen as somebody for whom words really mattered Mm. and seen by I mean looking back now he was probably I don't know 28 29 he wasn't old of course I thought he was ancient but he probably wasn't because I think in those days especially army schools were not particularly fertile ground for if you wanted to become headship of you know a headmaster of something but but somebody just genuinely enjoyed teaching and would have kids coming in and out because you often get a posting and leave in the middle of a term in the middle Mm -hmm. of a day it felt like sometimes that he just enjoyed that process of being with that age of child and sometimes taking them out on nature walks or sometimes telling them about you know the the um ancient history of Hermann's Dinkmar which we live near uh, or writing and telling stories, and he would tell our stories. He was one of those people who, at the end of the day, finished every day by re- telling a story from his head, wow. which I thought was—I I actually thought it was something all adults could do. <laughs> till I realised, and then I thought, how lucky that that I. Well, it is. I yeah, just think they don't. Maybe. I oh, think it is something that everybody can do. Maybe it is. Yes. Yes. Because some children can do it. Yes. So why would you lose that ability yeah. just by growing up? Yes. I think you limit yourself. That's very true. Yes. But what an extraordinary teacher. Yes. If you had seven different schools, this one teacher... And he, he was the only one, really, who made me feel... I mean, it's so pretentious to say it that I was a writer, I was a 10-year-old child, but he made me feel that I, I and words could go somewhere together. That's mm. what he made me feel, that there was a possibility of the excitement of that. Nothing to do with anything else. Because at that stage, I was dead set on being an actress. I mean, just beyond. I decided that when I was five, even though I don't think I've actually seen one or a play. <laughs> but I, you know, that everything in my academic career was about that. That's all that mattered to me at all. But it was to do with words. I was going to say when we were talking about the last item that actually, in my experience... People who say, well, perhaps I could write a book then or something and sit down and just start writing Mm. a book because they think it might be a good thing to do. I'm never going to write a book. They're never going to write a good book because they don't love it. And I think you have to really love the process of... I think you have to really know that it's going to be hard without mm. being, you know, it sounds so pretentious, but you have to know that it's going to matter. I think that's the thing, because along the way, you know, I had done sort of articles and things, and, you know, I've always written for, for pleasure, or, you know, and people have said to me, oh, you know, why, have a go at writing, you know, why don't you write, I don't know, um, children's presenter becomes detective, you know, and I think, because I don't even read that book. Mm. <laughs> you know, I could maybe do it as an imitation of something. Yes. If I read ten of those sort of books, I'm sure I could churn something out. But to me, it needed to matter. It needed to really matter 
But yeah, Mr. Wayne, buried to his friends, although of course I would never have known him like that. Um, lived quite near us with his with his wife and kids. On the, actually, no, he didn't have kids then. That's right. He 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 moved afterwards, and for a little while I knew where he was. I have no idea now. So if anybody ever wants to tell me what happened to Mr. Wayne, I would love to know. Mm. I would love to know. Well, the other huge little treasure, the pencils. I do, I do, yeah. And you see, there's two pencils. Yes. Yeah, so other pencil. What's the other pencil? The other pencil is a red pencil. <laughs> and it's, um, it's I wrested it from the hand of Fern Flynn. And Fern Flynn was my drama teacher, extramural, paid extra, uh, when I was 13. So by then we were back in the UK and I was at school in Kent. And wherever I was, I either read things aloud or joined in whatever or read in assembly. But at the school I was at then, you could pay for drama lessons with Mrs Flynn. And Fern Flynn was absolutely gorgeous. She had tumbling red hair. She was one of those people who managed to be ethereal without looking foolish. She (laughs) just had a quality of ease about her that didn't quite touch the floor. Mm. And... She was the one who made me feel an actress. She was the one. So that red pen is just me making notes. You know, where does where does the stress come in this line? Where does mm-hmm. what's she feeling here? What's the impetus behind what she's doing? Or let's give her a purpose. And because I hadn't really done anything like that before, none none of the schools I've been at, nobody in my family's no. anything to do with it. So I simply hadn't had somebody treating me like a potential actress, and that's what she made me feel really lovely woman. In fact, weirdly enough, she was married to Eric Flynn, who was Robin Hood. Oh, really? Yeah. And Johnny Flynn, the celebrated rather lovely actor, is um, related to her as well, although I've never got close enough to him, sadly, to be able to tell him about it. how important she was to you. Yeah. What's extraordinary is that as a 13-year-old, clearly when people treat you as if you're as important as them... Yeah. It's really memorable, isn't it? It is. And also, you know, unwittingly, I seem to have constantly chosen professions where when you say what you want to do, people don't go, oh, dentist, well done. Well, it won't be long till you have your own practice. If you say actress or writer, people go, do you know what? Nobody ever makes it, really. And even if they do, it's really hard. And even if they do and it's really hard, they don't make any money, you know. So there's been a kind of an ostinato beat of negativity about everything I've ever said I wanted to do. (laughs) But Fern Flynn, although of course I would not have called her that, Mrs Flynn, said, yes, you're going to be an actress. You're already one. You're already one. So let's just let's just get there together. And it was just... And everything that happened to me, particularly when I first started, or even getting into Central, I just thought, hey, Fern, <laughs> mm. here we are. Yeah, of course. That yeah. person who trusted you. Yeah. OK, yeah. yeah. You say you're going to do it. Let's and do you're it. right. Not making somebody feel foolish or, you know, or even that... Of course, if you, you know, if a 13-year-old says to me, I want to be an actress, you're kind of thinking, oh, can I just help you through some of those times? <laughs> yeah. Just when, when it doesn't work. Um, you know, um, but actually, what you're, what you're hearing is somebody who has this tiny, I don't know, like fire in them. Yes. That they can just feel burning. They don't even know what it is. Mm. But they know it's keeping them warm somewhere against everything else because... I do genuinely think if you're a child with that sort of ambition, you're lucky. Because it does just get you through. Yeah, yeah. All your choices. Yeah, no matter what that ambition is for. Yeah. You know, it doesn't yeah, have yeah. to be very active. Oh, no, 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 absolutely. No, no, no. And actually, you don't, you don't have to stick to it either. I'm not, no. you know, the 13-year-old potential vet doesn't have to commit to it. But just knowing that there's something for you later 
and that it helps your choices, I mm. think gives you immense hope for the yes. future. Immense hope. And a little bit of focus too. It is a job other people would like to do. Mm. You know, it's very appealing. After all, you meet, you know, that there's no happier person than the working actor, is there? <laughs> when you go on a film set, everybody's absolutely gorgeous because for those 10 weeks, they know they're in work. They couldn't be happier <laughs> or more welcoming. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of actors do say that uh, actors spend their entire time when they're unemployed moaning about the fact that they're they're not employed, and the moment they get a job, they think, "Oh, when am I going to get a holiday?" Well, got, or a day off. <laughs> a day off. And so why am I called at ten? My scene isn't until you know three pages in, and I really could I could have got here at twelve. No, no, of course, of course, that human nature. Yeah, it's just human nature, but it doesn't mean they don't love it. No, no. Yeah. No. Oh, those two <laughs> lovely pencils. Well, yeah. well done, those, both, well done, both those teachers. <laughs> yes, because, really. Yeah. And also, for you, life-changing. Yes. Because you may have been knocked down at every hurdle. Yes. And just eventually thought, well, I'll never do this. Yeah. But you just need somebody to say, well, okay, yeah. have a go. Yeah. And those two things as well. One, you are now a writer. Mm. And you're also an actress. Yeah. So those two pencils... Yeah. Open up the two areas of your life that you really yeah. wanted. Not sure how Mr. Wayne and Mrs. Flynn are going to get on together, but I'm sure they'll be fine. <laughs> Listen, <laughs> let's be modern about this. I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure Mr. Wayne loves ethereal. <laughs> she was very beautiful. Fantastic. So that's three items we've got mm-hmm. in there. So yeah. only two to go. Yes. Well, should we stick with a nice one or do you want the nasty one? No, it's up one? to you. Do you okay. want to get the nasty one out of the way or do you want to save it till the end? No, let's save it till the end. Okay. Yeah, I'm spitting on my hands. Mm. Um, yeah, the, the, the fourth one, um, <clears throat> well, well, it, well, it's a stick, basically. It's a stick because um, nothing else would fit in there, would it now? We've got, you know, <laughs> and pages. And I feel I, I don't want to make it too big because what the stick represents is the whole Thames towpath near me. Um, but the stick also represents the fact that if it's still a stick on the ground, the tide isn't too high, so that's fine. Mm. Me and Angela, the dog, can walk. And Angela and I walk the Thames towpath here between Hammersmith and Barnsbridge every single day. Really? <laughs> every day. And actually, uh, it's about five miles just under. Um, and You've got a big dog, haven't you? Big dog. Um, but also it's therapy for me. It's therapy and it's space to think about things and it's time to say things aloud and it's, <laughs> um, and it's exercise, you know, cause it's easily 10,000 steps. So that's all done, mm-hmm. but I really miss it when I can't. And she is still only two, so she still likes picking up sticks and walking along with them. She usually chooses something so unfeasibly large. The towpath isn't even that wide. I have seen people having to really almost jump in the river to avoid this dog with a ridiculous stick. And she doesn't doesn't really do anything. She doesn't want to carry it. Yeah. But, yeah, that that river represents so much to me. I absolutely, I never get sick of that walk. I never Mm. get sick of it just as well. And because it's a nice, where we are, the, the stretch of the Thames has lots of activity on it. There's loads of rowing clubs, there's a branch of the RLI, there's stuff. You know, it's it's hardly ever empty. Mm. And on the times when I'm early and we have the towpath to ourselves, that's pretty nice. That's pretty nice. Mm. And also at Smith Bridge, and um, who knows, we, people may be listening to this podcast in 20 years' time. I'm sure this will still be current. <laughs> Smith Bridge is closed. 
And it, I'm sure it'll be closed for a long time because there's no sign of anything. If you're thinking happening. of using it, don't. Yes, don't use Hammersmith Bridge. And if you if you can, oh, really, just be joyful because it doesn't matter to us on this side, frankly. No. People foolish enough to live in barns. It's a nightmare. You know, it's a nightmare for them. They they are they're on an island now. <laughs> it's hemmed in by by difficulty. But in the morning, Hammersmith Bridge being closed, there is one pedestrian walkway open. Two are available, one is closed. And the whole of the middle of the bridge is closed. And there's one walkway open. It is busier than the M1. (laughs) So busy that you really have to stay in lane. There's a little thing out that says you have to stay in lane. Yes. Which I'm fine with. I can read. My dog can't. So... We have a bit of a tussle across that bridge in the morning because she's eager to cross quickly and we're often behind the school child trailing unwillingly to school and we can't get around them. We cannot move faster than the traffic in front of us, the human traffic. Um, this theme of south of the river and north of the river <laughs> is, is occurring again and again in my podcast. I'm talking to too many Londoners, maybe, because <laughs> the people in the north all think that everybody lives in the south, they're all mad. And the people in the South, they no, hate no, no, we don't think that. We know that. You we, know that. We okay. know that. Well, they must be, otherwise... They made a choice. They'd live somewhere where they had a bridge. They'd live somewhere where they had a bridge. And, <laughs> and a French patisserie, in my case. But, yeah, I don't... Yeah, it's a mystery to me. And I'm friends with them. Of course we speak, but I don't understand it. At the end but, of the day, when they go the very long way round to go home, I don't understand them. It's sort of friends in the sense of, you know, landed gentry and serfs. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. yes. Well done, whatever your name is. <laughs> Perfect, that's excellent. How sweet of you. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yes, right, so walking down the River Thames, well, you're very lucky, I have to say, to we have are, that beautiful walk. We are really lucky, and we'd been here years before I realised it was even there properly. Really? Very occasionally I'd put her down there, you know, children on bicycles kind of thing, and we'd, mm. we'd try and get them home in roughly the same number and shape as we set <laughs> yeah. off. But it was really with our first dog that I discovered the joy of the daily walk. Yeah, the Thames, I think, having a... That's a, yeah. that's a massive river. It is a massive river. And there it is, just solid. You mm. know, it's so solid and it looks great. And there are bits of it that haven't really changed since Hogarth's time. Yes. Or, you know, there's etchings you can see of the river where you don't have to squint that much to think that's pretty much where we live. Yeah. Because you know the bit right by the water can't change very much at all, and the lucky thing is that on the actually on the south side, it's 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 not wilderness, but it's enough green to make you feel a little bit. You know, you come back with mud on your shoes. You know, it's disconnected enough. Yes. To not be, it's not paved. You know, it's uh, they've had a go at putting something or other down to make it more acceptable, but basically it's mud, and and it's just the unexpected pleasure in seeing the dandelions come through or the daffodils or the you know the the, the little spots of color mm. and particularly when john was first diagnosed that we were doing that walk as often as we How long could. Was that, he was diagnosed or well, the first time was three years ago and then he got secondaries mm. two years ago so i'm so bad on timelines i, mean, I think it must have been 2018 and uh, with secondaries, of course, they are not curable, but they're treatable. So yes. that's where he is. But we both took enormous comfort from that. I mean, we love walking together anyway. And this 
daily therapy and I you know anybody who likes walking will say the same thing that you have the best conversations with people side by side and facing forward because you're not doing anything else you know you're not having to worry about the expression on their face you're you know you're just saying what you think and what you feel and you made a marvellous decision all those years ago I mean the the fact that you live here was down to the fact that 30 odd years ago you went oh that's a nice house yeah when it was affordable of course well it it almost wasn't to be honest but but, yeah Sophie was coming to secondary school in this area I didn't know it at all I was a bit frightened of it actually because I'd lived further out Richmond way before and that to me was the acceptable face of West and for quite a long time after we moved here I used to drive back to Richmond to go shopping (sighs) Mm. Um, but I don't do that now um but actually, this area has been so good to us, so very good, and the house has been good, and it's it's kind of stayed, you know, it's the same shape, but inside it's translated itself into what we needed, you know, nobody, mm. nobody else but us does live there now, but there's frequent visitors, as I say, so it's down the road anyway with five children at this point in time and Jack and Martha aren't far away. There's, there's always somebody here, and, yeah. and I feel very grounded and I'm sure you know I don't need my portable therapist to tell me that I moved around a lot as a child (laughs) (laughs) and that now it would take uh, several willing people many many hours to get me out of here because I it's not minimalist is it it's not and you know (laughs) it's going to be a big job to move me out and if you want to get away, you can always come down here at the I end of the garden and yeah, sit in this room. We used to have an apple tree here when mm. we first moved in. It was a lovely apple tree, and it was so big and substantial that we hung a swing from it. And I have an abiding memory of picking Martha particularly up from school, because their school is around the corner, and her coming back down straight down the garden in most weathers and swinging. That was the first thing when we got home. And then we'd been away on holiday, probably Cornwall, and came back, and the apple tree was across the garden. Oh, no. I always thought they were sort of, I thought it would outlast me. I didn't realise they were finite. And we'd always had this, like, fantasy of this extra extra room that isn't that isn't the same as the rest. We went, you know, there's no there's no telly in here. There's Sometimes there's a, I bring a radio in, I have to confess. But, and actually, initially, um, not so much me, but my whole family who pushed up with me saying, I took for a long time. Thought I would just set up camp in here and write. Yeah. And I have never done that. <laughs> <laughs> this is your old down room. Oh, it's so shaming, yeah. isn't it? Because I write in what used to be, we call it the playroom. It's a teeny tiny room where the mainframe computer is. And I've just sort of clung to that. I like to be connected to the house. Quite like to be near the loo, actually. <laughs> but, but we made a decision not to put too much in here. Not just financially, but also because it's just nice to have this space and this these doors all open up yes. so in the summer you know it's where the light ends up to it's the last place to get the sun lovely so it's a good place for reading the papers, well it's basically. nice to be here i'm enjoying it <laughs> even on this rainy day yeah, exactly it's really yeah. it's cozy it isn't it it's it really is, cozy yeah. we're, we're, we're getting terribly cozy we're going to have to move on to one more <laughs> one more final item this yes. is the one here we go okay well it's it's a little medal it's a little medal for um motocross and it's not mine it's not mine at all in fact it's my dad's my dad was in the army and he was a very practical person really lovely genuine no agenda kind man and his two loves were shooting and he once came second at Bisley which is the shooting championships which is a big deal for anyone who knows about this stuff Mm. um but he also loved riding motorbikes fast through mud and that was 
something you went and did completely separately. I mean, I, I only went once and I'm not even sure why. I think there must have been, I've got a younger sister. I think my mother and sister must have been doing something daintier somewhere else. And I, <laughs> for some reason, and this is when I was still primary school, so I'm thinking 10 or 11, certainly no older than that. And I went with him for the day, which mainly, as far as I can remember, involved standing on corners with other families. You know, I wasn't entirely alone. But watching unidentifiable men <laughs> on bikes go past. I have no idea who they were. I, total mystery. Anyway, right at the end, um, my dad, he seemed to have done well enough to get a prize at this thing. So I'm standing with him. And by then, he's just in his uniform. He's out of his overalls and stuff. And there's the announcement, and he goes forward. And it's, it seems to be, in my imagination, it's in the middle of a sort of clearing of people, you know, an informal circle of people clapping as each one comes up to get their prize mm. for the motocross, whatever that is. And um, so he goes forward, and he shakes this man's hand, and then he turns around, and he just sort of, Gestures with his head to me, just sort of gestures. Come on, join me, join me. I think, oh my gosh, really? Wow, okay. And I step forward and there's sort of laughter because he was making that gesture to the rest of his team, not me. So as I walked forward thinking, not, not that that wasn't in our relationship, but it certainly wouldn't have occurred to me that I would be part of it. So I thought... I didn't know I was supposed to come up and oh, wow. be proud of this as well. All I've done is watch. Yes, all I've done is watch. And, you know, he's gone, actually gone, sort of, come on, come on. And, um, and then all these other men walked past me to go and oh. stand next to him. And then he sort of looked sort of appalled that I'd stepped forward as well. And I just wanted to die. I just felt uh. the wrongest I've ever felt most quickly. Oh, it no. was... Hideous. Um, oh no. I've done utterly the wrong thing and I've looked stupid and I've made him look foolish and you know undermined this great motorbike moment. And I can't remember ever, ever discussing it with him. I can't remember. And I'm sure if I did, he would go, When? What? Yes. You know, because I'm pretty sure it wouldn't have had the it's significant effect. But I was I was trying to be honest with myself when, when you asked about something that you just push away forever. And I thought, you know, there's several moments. Heaven knows. Mm. There's lots of moments that I thought, that is mortifying. That is mortifying. But in a way, I've managed to dilute them, I guess, by either practising a kind of amateur therapy or talking about it with other people or just burying it completely. And I thought, mm. what's the first time I can remember thinking, I don't want to be here? And it was then. Wow. It was then, Yeah. Yes, when you go back and you do examine those moments, quite often in life, what you do is you turn them into a into a comedy anecdote. Yes. But actually, if you're honest with yourself, particularly at the time, they're mm. terrible. Yeah, yeah. And it was, I think it's sort of unreachable too, isn't it? No, Nobody mm. there, certainly at that time, could have made it better. No. You know, it was done. It was, I'd, I'd made this terrible faux pas. And I cannot remember who I was with anyway, but the... the friends whoever they were would not have been able to say it doesn't matter because it had happened mm. and as far as I can tell it didn't you know my dad would have found it funny if anything but completely dismissible and anyway. yet you have a memory of his face of him looking at yes. you as much as to say what the hell are you doing yes obviously thinking what you know I don't you know as an adult I'm thinking you know if I sort of gestured like that and one of my kids came forward you might 
get down on their level and say, oh, no, 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 no you, you go and wait with, yeah. you know, aunties. So or, in fact, say, yeah, yeah, why not? Yes, Come exactly. and join me. Yes, but it, it obviously made him feel vulnerable too, but the wrongness of it. Because I would have thought fingers of one hand the times that I was alone with my dad. Mm. You know, just right. that kind of guy. So, and that's a military life, isn't it? It is, and it's also a lot to do with, with him. He, I would say that my mother was an extremely demonstrative person. My father was not. However, she won. So he, he gave in to that. I mm. mean, he still wasn't the roustabout kind of dad. You know, I, I remember when I was quite little going to a friend's party and her dad got down on all fours and allowed us to ride on him and use his tie as reins. And I remember thinking, what, is, what sort of a father is this? I mean, it's an amazing kind, but mm. it's not mine. Because I love my dad very much. But it was really until my mother died when I was 35. Um, quite a distant relationship. You know, one of those, definitely, if I phoned the house and he answered, he'd go, oh, hello, I'll get your mum. You know, it was definitely he'd pass on that sort of thing. Sort of very Victorian almost. Kind of, yeah. I mean, he lost his mother when he was 14 and was already at boarding school and then was went straight into the army at 18. And, in fact, he had lost his brother, my uncle John, when I was five, and his father a year later. So in logical terms, mm. by the time he was 30, he lost his entire family. Mm. As a child, of course, I didn't quite see it like that. No. But... Um, and he would have then also learned to not show yeah, that. absolutely. And particularly in a military situation, yeah, 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 that yeah. You, you don't show those emotions. Yes, exactly. And it just didn't come naturally to him. No. But it's funny that that whole episode of doing something with him which was completely out of character I mean I can't even remember as a family watching him do anything like that at all so there must have been some crisis I wasn't aware of yeah that he meant he had to take yes yeah there must have been just no alternative but yeah he definitely had a lovely flowering really of all those feelings my mother sort of had a flowering with her grandchildren. So uh, she would sit and tell them all sorts of did things. She? Yeah. And I would overhear these things. So I didn't know that. <laughs> oh, well, I never heard that. Yeah, that's really nice. You slightly wish that, in fact, they'd had that relationship with you when you were young. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I never, I, to be honest, I, I didn't really feel the lack of it. I loved them both very much. And I always used to think if I met them in another context, I'd like them. You know, they seem nice people. Mm. <laughs> yeah. My mother and I used to have a lot of fun. But he wasn't, he wasn't a sort of stern father. In fact, he just sort of left all that to her, really, both sides of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she was up to that. <laughs> but, um, yeah, he was, he was loving, but in that sort of completely unsharing way. But weirdly enough, he left the army when I was 14 and um, ended up working in the visual effects department at the BBC. Really? <laughs> yeah, he'd always like making things. And uh, in fact, I was doing an episode of four episodes of Doctor Who, and the company he was then working for uh, used to make models for Doctor Who. You know, they were very much a freelance company, and they made all sorts of things. But it meant that the guy who was in charge of visual effects on the one I did knew my dad because he'd been in the studio occasionally. You know, with this other company, and he said to me, "Oh, I think you should you should tell Mike." that they're um, doing, uh, I think they were called holiday contracts. It was an old BBC thing where 
you would come in on this very short term way of working. It was literally holiday cover, mm. but there was always a chance that they would only extend. And he said, there are some, you know, if he's brave enough to do it, he could come in here on a holiday contract and then we'll see. And see where and it goes. He, yeah, and he didn't leave till he had to, you know, retire. Wow. And if somebody had mm. gone up to your dad in those days and said, now, let me tell you something, in the future there'll be a thing <laughs> called eBay. Yeah. And all these things you're making, mm. yeah, if you just hang on to them. Oh, yeah. For sure, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I remember getting into Daleks and things when I was in my teens, you know. Cause, How brilliant that he made those things and then eventually you also then did it. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then he, um, the only episode of Blue Peter that I missed um, because I'd broken my pelvis, so, you know, really, that wasn't just uh, trying to get off games. Um, <laughs> my dad was coming into the studio to be interviewed by me about a Doctor Who model. So I had to be in my hospital and watch Sarah Green interview my father no. instead. No. Yes. Oh, and she was so good, wasn't she? <laughs> <laughs> so good, so young, so beautiful. Such a beautiful, I should <laughs> kind of hair. <laughs> <laughs> she is near here as well. <laughs> She's lovely, Sarah. She is. Oh, my word. How extraordinary. What a small world that is, though, isn't really? it? You I ended know. up in that... Totally, Same thing. totally. And what a I, shame I, he never made a Blue Peter model. I know. And as, as I used to say to him, I was there first. I just, you know, I can't be helped, but I, <laughs> I was. Try doing it with sticky back plastic. Yeah, yeah. That's what you said. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Janet, how lovely to talk to you. Oh, Thank you so much for taking part in well, my time, Thank Cassie. you. Thank you for indulging me with my scrappy notes of things that I quite liked and loved. Oh, I like a bit of homework. Well, well done. Oh, yeah. Also, you know, just that age, you've got to write it down, haven't you? <laughs> <laughs> Everything. I've got the way to the tube station written down just so I can get out of here. <laughs> you've been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my guest, Janet Ellis. You can subscribe to this podcast on Acast, Spotify or iTunes or your own favourite podcast provider. And we'd love it if you would rate us and leave a review. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at MyTCPod or at Fenton Stevens. This podcast was produced by John Fenton Stevens and the music is by Pass the Peas Music. It was a cast-off production. Thank you for listening, especially as you've listened all the way to the end. I can promise you it's worth it. You never know what you'll find out. I mean, this time... No, I've got nothing, I'm afraid, sorry. But next time, I'll reveal who the murderer in the mousetrap is. What do you mean you already know? Oh, fuck Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I'm a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water, it starts to just taste bland, and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher. It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness, and they come in five different flavors. They're so good wild berry acai grape pineapple mango lemon and mandarin orange my favorite is the wild berry because i just i just love a berry so if you're like me and you're drinking water all day then try splash refresher it's going to absolutely change your water game and it's good for you 
ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.